just uh, mention a couple things before we get to the book of Titus this morning. Um, one is uh, next Sunday, you, so those of you that have been here uh, for a while at Woodhaven, you know that uh, every year around May, um, we take an offering or a collection for uh, something with the CMA that Mo is involved in, Run for the Sun, and uh, we're going to be doing that next Sunday. So I wanted to make you aware of that so that if you'd like to give toward that, you can do it next week. Uh, and if you want any details on that, you can certainly talk to Mo. Uh, but I wanted to bring that before you. The other thing is, uh, obviously, if you left last Sunday and you didn't come by the church this week and you walked back in this Sunday, things look a little different in the lobby and the hallway. Uh, we're not quite finished, uh, but uh, hopefully this week we'll wrap up putting the flooring in out there. Uh, and just a special thank you to a number of guys who devoted quite a bit of time this week to that. Danny Knoll, Mike Nichols, um, and if I start trying to list everyone, it, it's going to go crazy. Um, so, uh, you know, there were a bunch of guys that stayed during the, uh, during the afternoon last Sunday, but appreciate so many of them. Uh, Dominic uh, did a lot of work. Zach Johnson did a lot. And so just thank you to those guys. Uh, one of the things I so appreciate about the body here is everyone's willingness to jump in when there's a project that needs to be tackled. Uh, so thank you to all of you that helped in that. And if I didn't mention your name, you have a reward in heaven. If I did, <laughs> sorry about that. Sorry, Mike. I ruined your reward in heaven by giving you an earthly, earthly admiration of those here. So um, anyway, uh, you can open up to Titus, book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. And as you're opening there, I want to read you uh, the titles of a couple of books. One of these is on my nightstand. I plan to read it uh, here in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Uh, but these several books, the titles are trying, and the books are trying to get at something that is happening in our country right now. Uh, the first one of these books, the one that's on my nightstand, is called The Fractured Republic. The next one that's coming out in October by a sitting United States senator is called Them. And then the, sub the subtitle is Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. And then the third book came out a couple of years ago. It's called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And as you hear those titles, you can see what brings them together. People are picking up on a significant problem in American life today, and they're trying to tackle it, and they're trying to help us to address it as a nation. And the problem is that we are increasingly divided in this country. And we're divided in our entire approach to life. We have people coming at what constitutes the good life and how to approach life as a nation from completely opposite ends of the spectrum. The social fabric that holds us together as Americans is splintering, it seems like, faster and faster. And so these very smart people are trying to address that in various ways. Now, I'm not here to offer any solutions to that this morning. I'm not here to talk about what causes the division and whether it's you know good or bad and who's right or wrong or any of that. But I, I draw your attention to that division because I want to talk about unity. You, you look in the news and you see the division and you see people desiring for us to come together and to uh, focus on the same thing as a nation. And so I want to address that concept of unity, even as you can see from the title of the sermon this morning. And for any group, whether it's a small group or a group as large as a nation, for any group to accomplish a goal, 
They have to be focused on the same thing. They have to be driven by the same thing. They don't have to have everything in common, but there needs to be an overarching goal that they're pursuing and that they're headed toward. That's true for our nation, and that's what people are struggling with, but that's even more true and even more important for the church of Jesus Christ. Unity is vital for the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't think about that often, but listen to what Jesus prayed in John 17. I mean, this is one of the last things he did on this earth before he died and rose again and ascended to the Father the night before his death. And he said, I do not ask for these only for the disciples who are right there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so Jesus prays for and desires unity among believers. And it's important for you to remember that Christ prayed this because when you get to the book of Titus, almost immediately after Christ ascends to the Father and you start to have churches developing, you see splintering happening in these churches. You see people fostering divisions within the church. Look at Titus chapter 1. We, we examined this maybe a couple of months ago. But at this point in this really young church, these group of churches on the island of Crete where Titus is ministering, you've got false teachers coming in and their ambition and the, the goal that they have and the result of their false teaching is division. And they're coming into this fledgling church like a fox into a chicken coop, and they're causing chaos. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So they're the false teachers, and look what's happening. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're causing division. In the church, they're upsetting whole families. And this is one of the main problems that Paul is addressing with Titus in this little letter that we've been studying here. And I want to show you something in this book that maybe you've missed as we've been going through it. And I've not drawn your attention to it in significant ways, but I want to kind of go back and show you something, a thread in this book that is really significant as you and I think about church unity. When you read the book of Titus, when you read all of the Pauline letters in the New Testament, the goal is not to create, God's mission and his goal is not just to create individual Christians who live before him and who love him and who worship him. His goal, his mission, our mission is to create a church that is unified and a people in the plural. We're supposed to be together in this whole thing. And the vast majority of Paul's exhortations to Titus are in the plural. It's words like we and us and them because he sees God as creating a people and not just individuals. The Spirit's work in the church is to build a community where, as you can see over my shoulder, doctrine works, where the faith is lived out amongst a group of people. Let me show you that. You're saved as an individual, but you're placed into a body and you live in that body. Look at chapter 2 and verse 11 down to verse 14. And notice the plural 
pronouns here, okay? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, right? As a group, training us, not just you as an individual, but training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, a group, a special people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All the plural pronouns. It's to create a people. Now, look down at chapter 3 and verse 1. We went over this last week, but it's helpful to read it again. Chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. It's not just you as an individual being ready for every good work. It's the church community unified together pursuing every good work. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. I mean, it's almost overwhelming as you read through this and focus on the plural pronouns here, right? Everything is about him creating a people, a group, a community. Look back at verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. We've talked before about American individualism. It's the the air we breathe. And American individualism hinders us like a set of blinders from seeing the church as a community. Instead, our faith becomes a very individual exercise rather than valuing the unity of the body. Listen to these very wise words from Eugene Peterson. The Bible knows nothing of a religion defined by what a person does inwardly in the privacy of thought or feeling or apart from others on lonely retreat. The focus is not on what you're feeling and doing inside, although that's part of your faith. It's about how you live that out and how you experience that within the community of the body of Christ. So let me say it this way. We are pursuing a thorough grasp of the gospel of grace that shapes life together so that we live out life together. So the implications of the gospel flow into community life here at our our church body. And when that happens, that unity will impact the world. It doesn't remain within these walls. That unity has an impact on the culture and on the world and on our neighborhoods and on our workplaces. And that has been a major goal of this letter, right? That's one of the things Paul wants Titus to teach and insist on, as we saw last week. 
So in light of all of that, in light of that talk about unity, that thread that goes through this letter of plural pronouns and the focus on the group and the community, here's what we're going to see this morning. I'm going to show you two paths to a Christian unity that impacts the world. Two paths to a Christian unity that impacts the world. And the first one of those, you can see it on the screen there, is we need to stick to the message. That's how you foster unity. So last week, we studied verses 1 through 8, which I loved that passage, loved working through that. And we just read that passage again, so hopefully that reminds you of what was happening there. But as we get to verses 9 through 11, it's important to know what's happening in verses 1 through 8 because verses 9 through 11 are kind of the conclusion of that passage. It brings that passage to an end there, brings it to a close. I mean, look at verse 9. Look how it begins. But avoid, right? So it's tying verses 9 through 11 and the thoughts there to what we've studied last week in verses 1 through 8. Ties it to what comes before it. So let's read verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Look at the beginning of verse 9. Paul tells them to avoid something. That's the command here. He tells them to avoid all of these different topics and types of teaching and instruction. And what does he mean by avoid? Well, I think what he means here is it's the same thing as here in Michigan when you're driving along the road and you see a fish jump out of the water of a pothole in front of you (laughs) and you realize that there's an entire ecosystem that has developed in that pothole in front of you and you panic and turn your wheel sharply and go around that pothole to the best of your ability. Now, you will probably hit three or four lesser ones as you go around it, but that's okay. You missed the big one there, right? Paul is telling them here to go around this type of teaching. Avoid it. Stay away from it. You avoid hitting it with the best of your ability. So what is he telling them to go around? What's he telling them to avoid? Well, you can kind of divide these types of teaching up into two sets of two. There's four total. The first two go together. The second two go together. The first two, foolish controversies and genealogies, okay? What is is he talking about here? Just to kind of summarize, what he's saying is these are types of instructions and discussions, topics of conversation that are speculation on issues that we're not really sure about. They're minor issues. They're not that significant and they're not that important. But the false teachers and others in the church were constantly talking about these sort of pet issues and these things of minor significance. They were arguing about things that really didn't matter in the end, and they made these things the focus of attention. And then they let those disagreements over minor issues destroy the unity of the body of Christ. So that's the first two. And the second two, quarrels or dissensions and quarrels about the law. Now, these are a little more significant than minor issues. This would have been like the false teaching that the the false teachers were giving. It was an interpretation of the Mosaic law, a particular interpretation demanding that the people there keep aspects of the Mosaic law. And so this was bad doctrine. This was bad teaching. And they would let these 
disagreements over that, over things that weren't central, they would let these things turn into full-blown fights, and it brought disunity within the body. That's what the false teachers were trying to do, and that's what Paul tells the leadership and the body at these churches. You've got to avoid those things. You've got to avoid making them the focus of your ministry. Don't let minor issues become the major focus. Now look back at verse 9 and notice what he says at the end of this. Why do you avoid them? For they are unprofitable and worthless. So he says that there. You don't want to invest your time in these areas. And verse 9 ties back to verse 8. And because that's because verse 8 is what they need to focus on. So if these things in verse 9 are unprofitable and worthless, look what he says at the end of verse 8. He says, these things, the things you're supposed to focus on are excellent and profitable, right? So verse 8 is what you need to focus on. Verse 9 is what you don't want to focus on to maintain unity. So if you look back in verse 8, he says at the beginning, I want you to insist on these things. And at the end of verse 8, he says, these things are excellent and profitable. Okay, Paul, what are the these things? What do you want us to focus on here? Well, you know the answer to this. He's talking about the gospel that he's just explained in chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. Look back at verse 4. Here's the focus. This is what we're unified around. But, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. These are the truths with Christ at the center that we have to keep as the bullseye that we aim toward. This is what we're all about as a church body and as individual Christians. If your basketball team is trying to win the game, and you spend all your time arguing about whose shoes look the best, you're not going to successfully play together to accomplish the goal and the mission because you're letting minor things override your goal and your purpose for existence. Some of you are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, He was a German pastor who... Uh, was actually martyred under Adolf Hitler uh, because he was opposing the Nazi regime. And Bonhoeffer wrote this little book that I think is probably the best book I've ever read on unity amongst church members and the church body. And it's a little book simply titled Life Together. It's fantastic. And here's, here's what he says is the basis for Christian unity. Look at this. Christian community means community through and in Jesus Christ. On this presupposition rests everything that the scriptures provide in the way of directions and precepts for the communal life of Christians. What's he saying? All the commands in the Bible, the one and other commands, they all rest on the unity that we have in Jesus Christ, the gospel that we just read in verses four through seven. That's what brings us together here this morning. We're not here because we have the same income level, because we have the same political interests. We're not here because we have the same hobbies 
the same choice of school for our kids, because we have the same personal standards, those reasons don't bring us together. That's not what ties us together as a church body on mission. We ought to be gathered together this morning around Jesus Christ. He is what we have in common. And the grace that has rescued us from verse 3 in chapter 3, and that lifestyle, that grace that rescues is what unifies us and brings us together. But man, we tend to forget that, don't we? It's so easy to sort of push that to the side And then we tend to cluster together with people who are like us in all these other ways. Minor issues become what brings us together. It's like we really do tend to organize our team around wearing the same style of shoes rather than the goal of winning the basketball game. Now, unity doesn't mean, he's not saying that we all need to delight in the same things, we all need to have the same political opinions, the same hobbies, same choices. That's not what he's saying here. There is a beautiful, glorious diversity in God's kingdom. And I use that term in the right way, diversity. But the central uniting factor is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what brings us together and the implications that flow from that. So how do we ensure that? I mean, that's tough. It's tough to stay focused. We have, we, we tend, the steering wheel tends to get out of alignment and it's hard. And we tend to drift this way and we tend to drift this way. So how do we stay focused on the main thing that unites us? Let me give you a couple of maybe application ideas for this to help us as a church body process through how we stay focused. First of all, when we gather as a church body here on Sundays in small groups, other times, we have to keep the scriptures as the focal point. That doesn't mean the only thing we do in our small groups is read the Bible, but it means the gospel of Jesus Christ and the scriptures are what we're there for. And that's what we rejoice in together. So when you come in here on Sundays, what should you expect? You should expect that we are going to sing the word of God, that we are going to speak the word of God in preaching, that we are going to pray the word of God and that we are going to share God's word with others as we talk about God's word and the gospel, because that is what brings us together. That has to be the main ingredient in our Sunday gathering, and it has to be the the pivotal point for everything we do as a church body. Second, you and I have to keep the gospel as central as individuals. Obviously, our church is made up of individual people, and so each one of us has the responsibility to make sure that the gospel is central to our lives and our families' lives. Maybe the reason that sometimes we're not as unified as we ought to be is because we don't have a deep grasp of the gospel. I think if we really understood verses 4 to 7 and what we had been saved from and what has placed us in this church body together, man, we would rejoice and we would be able to overlook minor inconveniences with one another because the grace of God has worked in that person's heart. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Letting side issues determine your fellowship is a little like putting a fence post in to stabilize a fence, but only putting it down four inches deep. 
when you don't have a healthy grasp of the gospel, when the doctrine that you know isn't really, really deep and good and grounded in the scriptures, then you're going to get blown over by winds and minor issues are going to take you off track. But when your understanding and grasp of the gospel is deep and well-rounded and thorough and biblical, then those minor things, the winds of difficulties and annoyances aren't going to blow you off track. You're going to stay stable and you're going to stay focused. And so my encouragement is let's go deep in good gospel theology and that will bring us together around the gospel. And third, I would say let's rejoice in the variety of saints that God has brought us as a body. We're all weird in our own way, aren't we? Yeah, it's true. Everyone in here has different hobbies, different enjoyments, different convictions, opinions, experiences, and that's okay. And that's actually a good thing. It's not good if everyone is the exact same age, looks the same, loves the same things, and has the same hobbies. It's not a good thing. One of the things that ought to make the church compelling to the world is that there's so much diversity and variety within the church, and yet we still are able to love each other and still are able to focus on the main goal and the mission. And that mission is Jesus Christ and his gospel going to the world. So let's keep the hub as the center and let everything else flow off of that. Stick to the message. That's the first First thing we're talking about here this morning, the first path to unity, stick to the message. And then when we learn to stick to the message, we need to guard that message from those that would cause division. And that's the second path here. Pretty simple. Two paths to a Christian unity that impacts the world. First, we have to stick to the message. Second, shut down the divisive. This is important. When someone threatens the unity that we have in Jesus Christ, We have to deal with that decisively. It's not a minor thing when someone brings disunity and disruption to a church body at all. Look at verse 10. Look look how seriously Paul addresses this. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's pretty, pretty straightforward. And in Greek, this is a very simple sentence. Uh, in English, it's actually way more words than it is in Greek. And at the beginning of it, the, the person who stirs up division, he calls that person a factious man. The idea there is he's a partisan, partisan person, a sectarian individual. And when you think of a partisan person, you think of someone who, regardless of facts, sticks to their side of the narrative, right? That's a partisan person, partisan individual. And it's a person who stirs up division because they're not willing to think carefully and focus on the main goal. That's a partisan individual, and that's who he's describing here. And these individuals foster that antagonism that comes from being sectarian within the church body. They want that to happen. That's the end goal of what they're teaching and what they're doing. So these false teachers in Crete were causing that to happen in the church body here. And Paul says the result of their bad teaching is division. And I want you to deal with that division decisively. You cannot let these people out of a pretense of love continue to foster division in the church. 
And I think you can see the connection between doctrine and lifestyle here again, except this time it's negative, isn't it? Bad teaching, bad doctrine brings about unhealthy, sinful results in life. Bad doctrine brings about division here. And Paul wants to deal with both of those, but he more strongly here wants to deal with the result of it, the way it plays itself out in the church body, which is divisiveness. So that's what he's going to do here. He's not going to tolerate contentious people. Protect the flock. And what does he tell them to do? It's pretty simple. As for a person who stirs up division, a partisan man, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That, that last phrase there is one word, and it means dismiss him, reject him, get him out of there. Make sure that this individual is not going to bring division in the church. Now, that seems pretty harsh, right? It's, it doesn't seem like Paul is practicing patience here with this individual, the way he describes, or this group of, of teachers here, the way he describes this. I mean, it is, it is cut and dry for him. Warn him once, warn him twice, and kick him out. <laughs> Don't have anything else to do with a divisive person. Why? It's because he believes the unity of God's church is so significant and so important. He values it so much that he's willing to do whatever it takes to protect that unity. To protect the health of Christ's body, we cannot allow cancer to fester and go unchecked in the body. You deal with cancer in a decisive way, and Paul would say deal with division in a decisive way as well. These people were doing exactly what verse 9 describes. They're focusing on bad doctrine quarrels about bad doctrine, and they're focusing on minor issues and trying to sway people to their side of the divide, topics of lesser important, and they're saying, don't you agree with me on this? Don't agree with those other people on this. We have it right, and it's this minor issue. And so they're fostering division in the church. This is a strong reaction, but let me just remind you how important this unity is. Look at John chapter 13. Jesus talked about this, the relationships that we have with one another within the body. What John 13 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, there's a lot to learn from this, but I want to draw your attention to two things here that'll help us foster unity. First of all, Jesus says here that we are to love one another. Look at the first verse, as I have loved you. Our love for one another, the way we relate to one another, is to be a reflection of the way that Christ has loved us. And that's a profound statement. And what he's saying is the gospel drives our relationships with one another. You and I are to think, how has Christ loved me? And then you're supposed to bend that out toward those in the congregation, that vertical love that you've received from Christ, bend it out toward others within the body and act that way toward others. And so we have to ask, how has Christ loved us? Well, we could spend all afternoon meditating on that. Let me just draw your attention to one way in particular. Christ has loved us despite our sin. 
That's what sticks out to me about this statement. He's, he's loved us. We're supposed to love others as he has loved us, and he loves us despite our sin. Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love demonstrates itself even though you and I were rebels and sinners before him. So to love others as Christ has loved us, we need to love even when it's difficult because of sin. Even when other people mess up, we are to love them sacrificially. We're to love them in tangible ways despite sin. But look what else those verses say. Go back to them here. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And then here's the second, the second thing that helps us with our unity. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is one of the major reasons why Christian unity is so important. And this is our statement for the morning. Two paths to a Christian unity that will impact the world. When we love one another as Christ has loved us, it demonstrates something to the world. It showcases the gospel to the world. It puts the gospel in lights for unbelievers to see. How so? What other action could make Christ-loving sinners as clear as a group of sinners who love one another? We are doing the exact same thing that Christ did for us, and we're demonstrating that to one another. And that puts the gospel on display when we're gracious and kind with others. So Paul reacts so strongly to division in the church because division in the church is a false gospel. It says the wrong thing about the work of Jesus Christ. Division in the church, when I don't love others because of their sin or because of their petty annoyances or something that bugs me or because they have a different conviction on this or they make a different choice about where they're going to send their kids to school. When I don't love another brother because of those minor issues, it says to the world, Jesus won't really love you despite your minor issues and despite your sin. It is a false gospel that we're preaching to the world when we're divided over these petty things. An insignificant thing. We're saying that our Lord only loved people who were like him and had it together. Because we only love people who are like us and have it together. And Paul makes that very clear. Go back to Titus chapter 3. It's a false gospel. It's a sinful way to live. Look at, look at verse 11 in chapter 3. Here's the reality behind the divisiveness. This is what's driving it. Knowing, Titus 3.11, that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So, it's a little tricky here because we want to love people in their sin, right? Like I just told you. And the way we love these divisive people is we warn them. We go to them and we say, you have to stop this. Out of love for the body of Christ, you have to stop fostering division. And when they don't respond to that, we do what Paul says here and we reject them. 
We reject them because they're continuing in their sin and they are showing that they're self-condemned, they're warped, and they're sinful. Obviously, Paul gives three descriptions there. What are they? They're, first of all, it's warped or bent. When you get water, a significant amount of water on wood floors, the wood warps, it bends. It is not as it should be. And that's the way Paul describes this divisive person. He is not living in line with the gospel, and he will not respond to rebuke and correction. He will not repent, which demonstrates the gospel has impacted me. Second, he's sinful. I mean, you know what you know what that is. It's the same word that's used in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The person who fosters division is sinning. And so division is not a small hiccup in the life of the church. It's not something we sort of overlook and deal with. We deal with it decisively because this person is sinning. They're warped. They're bent out of shape. They're not properly representing the gospel. And so we deal with it. They're not living under the authority of God as expressed in his word. God intends for us to dwell together in unity. And we miss the mark badly when we foster schism within the church. And then finally, you can see in verse 11, they are self-condemned. The person's, this divisive person's own actions, their own response to being confronted shows that they are condemned. Because when someone comes to them and says, hey, I think you're fostering division here, and here's why. Let me, let me help you to see this in your life. And they reject that and continue to foster division. They are showing that they're not under the authority of God, and they're not responding properly to his word. And so they are self-condemned. Their own actions bring condemnation and demonstrate the condemnation that they deserve. It's a dangerous path to, review, to refuse correction that comes when you're being divisive. So, all of this, let me explain it this way. I'm a parent. <laughs> Try to bring both of these points together here. I'm a parent, as many of you are. And there are kind of maybe two overarching goals for parenting that you have, right? One is you want to train your kids and teach your kids to love that which is good to enjoy God's good world as a gift that he's given us, to be thankful for the, the many things that God has brought our way, the gifts that he's given. We want to train them to know the gospel, to learn the gospel, to learn the scriptures in a positive way. We want to build that teaching into them. But on the flip side of that positive encouragement, I will protect my kids. I do not know any martial arts. But if someone messes with my kids in a dangerous way, I will do everything in my weak and feeble power to make sure that my kids are safe. And you would do the same thing. And those are the two sides that Paul is, is talking about here. Focus on what is good. Train in what is good toward unity and do everything you can to keep the church safe from disunity and division. I think that's what Paul's saying here in summary. He wants to foster unity by helping the people to stay on message, avoid going off on all these minor issues, and defend the church from anyone causing division. And so I want to encourage all of us toward both of those things, both of those lines of thinking. Stay on message, 
and shut down divisiveness when it comes your way. And I'll end by saying this. Jesus Christ is too valuable to get off message. And our mission is too significant to let division splinter what we're doing. Jesus is too valuable and the mission is too important to do anything else. Let's pray. Father, we love your church. We want to love your bride even more. And we're so thankful for the community that you have put us in. And so we pray, even today as a body, that you would help us to build one another up by staying on message, by focusing on Jesus Christ and his gospel. And certainly we can talk about these minor things and we can, we can even rejoice in our differences and the variety of folks that we have here, but help the gospel to be the main thing for us and to stay the main thing. And Lord, I pray that you would give us special grace if division were to come into this body. I pray that you would help us to decisively deal with it and to reject it because we value unity that reflects your gospel accurately. Give us the grace to do that. We know you will. We're confident in your word. We're confident in your work in our hearts through your spirit. Thank you for our time together this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we...